Hello, I'm Howard and welcome to the 9320 podcast and a special podcast, a one-off about the City Matters Consultation Group, as the club call it. So what I'm calling Supporter Matters and who better to discuss that with than the season card holders representative on the group, the one and only Colin Savage. Good morning, Colin. Good morning, Howard. How are you doing? I'm all right, yeah, yeah. Um, Up to my neck in City Matters paperwork and um, like anything else... When you start these things going, there's all sorts of, you know, energy and enthusiasm yeah. and things flying around. But I'm sure it'll settle down. But now it's just paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's jump straight in then. Uh, if just ask you this question, you know, not everyone may know about this, especially they're not active, heavily active on social media, on Twitter or whatever. Uh, what is City Matters and how did it come about? Well, City Matters is what the <coughs> excuse me what the club disca- describe as a, a fan representatives committee, and basically it's a group of committee uh, a committee a group of supporters representing various constituencies, if you like, which we'll talk about later, uh, meeting senior club officials. Uh, basically, it's a formal structured way of the club engaging with the fans, and, and I think how it came about the, the club have had various initiatives over the years and we'll talk about those later but actually it's a premier league a lot of people don't know this it's a premier league rule that clubs have to engage formally with their supporters have i think what they call structured engagement with supporters yeah uh, and there's various ways of doing that of course um but th- the most interesting thing is there's um a group in parliament called the football expert working group which reports to the sports minister at the DCMS, uh, and that's been working for a while. That's been looking at very specific areas, uh, and one of those has been supporter representation, supporter engagement, uh, and one of their recommendations was that all clubs should have a some sort of committee or some sort of group of fans, preferably elected, who work with the club and meet with them on a regular basis to discuss matters of interest. So, um, again, uh, City... Res- presumably responding to the football expert working groups and Premier League recommendations. Right. And obviously City announced this uh, through the website online and you thought this is something you'd be interested in in doing. Yeah, because it's always something I've been interested in doing. I I think I made the point in the previous podcast. I was part of a supporters trust back in 2005-2006 2007, around the time of the Shinawatra uh, takeover, then ownership. So, so it's you know, I, I'm, I, and I'm very keen on um, the club listening to its fans because we're an important yeah. part of the uh, important part of the club's overall existence. I mean, you know, football is nothing without fans. It's it's a bit of a cliche, maybe, but but it's very true, um, and certainly the. the Talking to other fans, there's certainly a little bit of a, a feeling that City, in its wonderful growth, I mean, we're, we're in fantastic hands at the moment, but in this wonderful growth of City Football Group, um, the guys, uh, the people who come to matches every week, you know, the, the 50,000 attend the Etihad, the 3,000 to go to away games, they've some, they've been kind of put into the background a little bit, gone into the background from the club's experience. Uh, and And just a feeling the club don't really understand what it is to be a match-going fan, but they're very good about the international side of things, of course. 
Yeah. Uh, just before we get on to what the remit, what you hope to achieve, uh, the committee and what's happened so far and everything, you know, going to the details, just small point, you're called, you're officially called the season card holders yes. representative. Now, of course, that all season card holders tend to go to football matches, though with a few empty seats, not all of them seem to be going, uh, but not all match goes are season card holders. So, is it a bit strange that you only represent some of the fans, so to speak, and not our entire uh, fan base? Or is there a, a good reason for you for the club have honed in and created a group just for the season card holders? Um, well, personally, I think I would have had someone representing non-season card holders on the committee because basically there's two there's two types of people who attend. Well, three types of people who attend matches. Obviously, one is the season card holders, one is the ordinary members who don't have season card. And there's away fans, of course, but we're not going to get an away fans representative. So, yeah, personally, uh, we haven't got a citizens members type rep on on the committee, um, which potentially I think is a bit of a gap. But perhaps we'll, t- we'll talk through who is on the committee. And they do represent various groups and various interests. But um, to me, it was a, a little bit of a strange omission. All right. All right, well, before we look at who's on the committee, uh, what is your remit, you know, in your as your role, uh, what you're hoping to achieve through this? Well, uh, the committee's in its very early stages, so we're still working out how we work together, how we work with the club, how we work with the fans. Uh, and perhaps the best way I can talk about the remit is to look at what the club actually sent to us as part of the... Recruitment pack. Anyone could apply yeah. to go on the. Uh, we'll talk about the election process, but anyone could apply to go uh, onto the shortlist. And the club sent out a pack. So this is not, um, you know, this is in the public domain. So I'm not giving anything away. Yeah. Um, and the club say the committee has been created as part of MCSC's Club Matters initiative, through which fans can voice their feedback, opinions, and suggestions. Suggestions for improvements on a host of issues and topics which are of importance to the wider supporter fan base. So right. so I think the, the, the remit is to represent my constituency, to use the word, uh, and for all the um, other reps to represent their constituencies. Uh, hopefully it will be a two-way process, so the club will be telling us some of the things that they want to do. We will be telling the club some of the stuff that concerns us as fans, um, uh, and we'll t- hopefully talk together to um, try and work through those issues as best we can. And don't always succeed, of course, but um, you know there are a lot of issues affecting uh, match-going and uh, non even non non-match-going fans, but particularly match-going fans. I think that 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 I say I think there's this gap between the club and the fans on. So I think the club recognises this, and that's why yeah. they've got us in to do that. How are you going to choose the issues that you go to the club with? Obviously, you'll have your own views on all aspects of the fan experience, tickets, prices, other areas for season, you know, concerns of season cardholders. But obviously, you're representing the fans as a whole. So how will you get together? How will you decide what issues you choose? Are you going to ask people on social media or are you just going to... Is it just things that you spot other people discussing well, well i think we we know about a lot of the things that affect people uh, via social media and, and via being match going fans ourselves so you know we, we we all know 
the, the, the this stuff about the ticketing system at the moment, which which mm. is uh, and the whole issue of tickets, you know, um, big argument on the Blue Moon forum the other day about ticket allocations uh, for away games and things like that. We know the ticket side isn't working properly. That's probably more of an operational issue and certainly the, something the club are aware of. Um, there's things about how we manage stadium expansion, you know, how um, in terms of ticketing, why are there still empty seats when we've got sold out games? So there's a lot. Catering is another big issue, uh, obviously. Um, h- how we communicate with fans, um, all, all these issues. But we'll decide as a committee. Uh, the club the club will also decide what they want to put on the agenda. They may have something to talk to us about, uh, which is of great importance. They feel it's of great importance to the fan base. Uh, and we'll have things that we want to talk to them about. And the interesting thing will be to see what, what the club wants to talk about may not necessarily be what we want to talk about, but we have to find yeah, a way of exactly. bridging that gap. OK. Uh, so who's on the committee then and how were they chosen? Right. Um, the, the process was uh, there was an, adver- uh, an advertisement, but the, the club put out something on the website saying they were putting forward this committee and inviting people to apply to be representatives. So you had to fill in a short application form, give a 400-word profile, and then um, a number of people were shortlisted into the various categories. So so the categories that the the club came up with were um, families and young people, uh, under-25s, season card holders, then uh, the official supporters club and disabled supporters, Female supporters, um, one from season, someone from seasonal hospitality, uh, an LGBT rep, and a BAME rep. I think I've covered it. They also wanted a, a local residence rep. That right. um, that wasn't quite resolved when we met last week. So there are ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Currently, ten of us. Hopefully a, a local representative. And we've also um, been talking about getting an international uh, fan on board uh, as far as we can. Obviously, it won't always the timing won't always um, be good for them. But, uh, you know, where we need an international input, we'll, we have someone in mind for that. Yeah. So do you, want, do you want me to run through the actual names? If, if you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just so people... Yeah. Obviously, one of the jobs is to promote the committee... Of course, yeah. So, um, running down in well, well, alphabetical order of first name, really, which is the list I've got them. That, that, that there's uh, Adam Purdue, who's actually the chair of the committee now, and he's yeah. representing families and young people. Families and young people. Uh, Andrew Bucknall is the BAME representative. This me, Colin Savage, representing season card holders. John Brown, who many will know, is representing the LGBT community. Kevin Parker is representing the OSC, and Kevin's name should be familiar to everyone. Yeah. Mark Barber's also um, representing disabled supporters, and he's head of the um, the DSA, which al- already has an official relationship with the club, representing disabled supporters. Uh, Matty Dove is representing under-25s. A lady called Patricia Robinson is representing over-65s. Uh, Sophie Bowden is the female supporters representative and Simon Walker is representing seasonal hospitality. 
So, you know, there's a few, potentially a few gaps in there, but you don't want these things to be too big because it becomes unwieldy. So I mentioned that, that I'm representing season card holders, Simon Walker's representing seasonal hospitality, but there's no one representing the other few thousand fans who come to a game who aren't one of, the, one of those two. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no one representing... I'm representing all season card holders, but again, you could look at it as so, someone representing each different part of the ground. So a representative for each different stand who might have their own issues, I don't know. So, so you know, it's a bit of a demographic mishmash at the moment, but that's it, it is what it is, and we've got it started. So I'm sure that things will evolve over time um, when we work through these issues. Well, then I'll just ask you what's happened from the moment that you were elected. What's happened until I know you had a meeting, I lose track of time, might have been last week or the week before. Uh, so you've just run me through what's happened from the moment you've been elected until uh, the present day. Yeah, um, effectively, we've had one, we've had a number of kind of uh, correspondences with the club, but we've had one uh, introductory meeting with representatives of the club at the CFA, and that was last. Um, Last Tuesday, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday, can't remember which. Uh, it seems a long time ago now. So we all met each other. For, I mean, some of us know each other anyway, but we all met as a group for the first time. We met club representatives and we talked through a number of admin logistic type issues. So how, how we work as a committee, how we set the agenda, the frequency of meetings, um, how often we we, uh, we have elections, for example. Um, so, so it was quite an interesting chat and and. Uh, you know the the club. It's the first time the club have done anything like this formally. It's the first time, obviously, we've been involved in anything like this formally. So these things will take a, a little bit of time to evolve. We do have a first for, first formal meeting set up for um, November the eighth. So that's about what three weeks time. Yeah. So that will be our first business meeting with the club. But as yet, we, we we've got to have. We're going to have a. I think what the, the plan is that we as a group are going to have a pre meeting. Um, shortly before that meeting so we can talk amongst ourselves about how we operate as a group um because it's very when you're in a committee group situation i've been in these before it, it's very important how you manage yourself as a group yeah so um, everyone gets a say obviously so everyone gets a say and we're not contradicting each other and and things like that so so it's the how you know how we present ourselves as a, a group of homogeneous group rather than a, a set of individuals just all shouting against uh you know shouting against each other and, and competing for attention yeah the club suggested the time the time uh how long this these meetings would be because there's an obvious problem there that if they're are they allocated you as much time as you need or is it a one-hour meeting where you come away feeling frustrated yeah yeah it's an interesting point that because they were looking at um they were talking in terms of a one and a half to two hour meeting uh, they, they've suggested a template agenda, for example, um, and they were looking in terms of you know one and a half to two hours, and these things always overrun. Uh, we felt that if you're going to have a substantive discussion on a, a an item of importance, you probably needed a lot more than say half an hour talking about you know the whole issue of ticketing, for example, to to pick yeah. one thing out the uh, pick one thing out the uh, thin air or. You know other matters such as um, stadium expansion or the CFG, uh, how we communicate with fans. All those, you know, you, you need a good substantive discussion. And, and again, I suggest, you know, I, I, I think these things will evolve over time. But 
there is the danger that the you know you kind of you do come away a little bit frustrated that you've not had a chance to talk through the things but I think the club is open one of the good things the club is open to suggestions so if we need a subgroup if if we need to meet as a group uh, among the committee if we need to meet with people at the club that the lines of communication will be open so so we don't expect to be able to go into a discussion and resolve stuff in half an hour so um, yeah. because the danger is that at the moment, the frequency of meetings is set at quarterly, roughly. Now, again, we're not sure that that will serve the purpose, but we'll find a way of operating. Because what you don't want is to have a, a meeting in November and then nothing happens until December, January, February or something like that. End of January, yeah, February. Exactly. So, so there'll be, there'll, I'm sure there will be ongoing discussions between us, us as a committee and between us, us and the club. And the clubs seem open to the idea of having meetings um, as and when needed. So, you know, that typical scenario might be we go to a meeting, they give us a presentation on something they want to do, we talk through it, we go away as a committee, we go back to the club, uh, and we have some ongoing discussions with them, and then perhaps we finalise something at, in three months' time. Or, you know, if it can't wait for three months, then... Um, because if, obviously if the club wants to do something at the start of next season for example um we can't afford that to drag on for too long because they have so, to do you get the feeling that a lot of this would be yeah you represent you going away with stuff they're suggesting they want to do to you or did did you come into this thinking that you'd get to entirely tell them about you know give them suggestions and make changes to the, well, the fan experience well, or obviously you just hope it's a mix between the two obviously I hope it's a mix between the two because I think I said before that I, I don't necessarily and I'm not criticising them but I think in some ways they've lost sight of what it, it means to be a match going fan in, in this day and age yeah um, and they do things for their convenience that look good on paper or that tick a box or you know the numbers look right and it impacts on us as fans. So certainly I think we'll be going to them. Uh, we have a chance to set the agenda. But also we, we would want to hear what they've got because we don't know what the club have got planned. So obviously we're keen to hear initiatives that the major initiatives that, that the club have got planned that we don't know about. So hopefully yeah. it'll be a mix of both. But I suspect, uh, unless the club have got something so dramatic in the wings that we've not even thought about it, I suspect the subjects will be... Uh, there'll be a large degree of overlap between what the club wants to talk about and what we want to talk about. Okay. Uh, uh, one uh, extra question for me. I'm not trying to get you into trouble here, so <laughs> keep that in mind. It's all right. I can manage that myself without your help, Howard. <laughs> no, it's just you spoke earlier that you, in a way, you know, this was club-led that they put it on the site and asked for representatives, but there's a feeling that they were compelled to do it because of Premier League rules. From your first meeting... Are you quite confident that the club are on board with this and, and things will get sorted? Uh, yeah. I mean, and as I said, I'm not trying to get you into trouble. The proof of the pudding's always in the eating, isn't it? Um, and, and my first question, when they, rang me, when they rang me up to tell me I was going on the... Sh- I, I, I kind of didn't finish this, but they rang, us, rang me up to tell me I was going on the shortlist and to kind of talk, talk through with me whether I was, you know... Uh, understood everything that involved it would involve time you know obviously whenever you put your head above the parapet in this day and age of social media you get shot at um but one of my first questions was well who's leading this from the club you know because that that to me was quite an important question because perhaps we'll talk about 
uh, talk about it later. If you don't get the right people involved in this, then it becomes a, a, just a message passing exercise. So they told me that Omar Barada, who's not as familiar as name as Ferran Soriano, but he's the chief operating officer at City. And I think people think that Ferran, Ferran makes all the decisions at City, uh, but he's chief exec of CFG. So he's got the global um, responsibility. But um, yeah. Omar Barada is basically the, the, the man in charge of day to day charge of affairs at City so he's going to be there at all the meetings and as are other representatives of the club so that and certainly having met the club I'm quite happy I, I veer between total cynicism and total naivety so um, th there's no in between with me so yeah. so yeah one of my concerns is it's just a, a box ticking uh, one of my original concerns was it's just a box ticking exercise um, that the, the club aren't really interested in listening to our views. They just want to tell us what they want to do. And, and again, we'll, if we talk, on, if we talk a bit later about past initiatives, then you know, good reason for thinking that. But I, I'm actually quite confident we will get a good dialogue with the club. So yeah, I'm 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 happy that things are moving in the right direction so far. But we'll see how things how things go. Indeed, and obviously, no doubt we'll talk on future podcasts when you've had more meetings. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for updates and see how it's going uh, and whatnot. Uh, just one final question before we look at our history of protests, because there is some, you know, obviously we have a history, <laughs> there's a history of fan protests as well throughout that history. Uh, what's the history of fan involvement? Uh, just going to ask you, have other clubs got a similar group to yours uh, like this, or is this something that's been replicated elsewhere already? Uh, yeah, we're, we're actually quite, we've been, well, in some ways, quite slow off the mark. We, um, the Football Expert Working Group put, um, put out an annual report showing what clubs are doing in, in, in this area. And um, they did it at the end of last season. So for all clubs who were in the Premier League last season. So different clubs have different ways of doing this. But um, so, for example, to take a few of our peer clubs... Arsenal, they have a supporters forum that hold three or four meetings a year, attended by the chief executive, communications director and other senior staff. Yeah. Um, Manchester United have got a similar um, forum. So they uh, they have 14 fan representatives uh, and it's attended by senior club staff, including Richard Arnold, the group managing director, Ed Woodward uh, and various um, other club officials. And they hold it quarterly. Liverpool have uh, a very active committee. Um, they've got 12 members. They try and hold at least three meetings a season. The, their chief exec, uh, communication director, go go to theirs. And they, interestingly, Liverpool have just split up their um, single committee into uh, five different forums, each consisting of eight to 12 members. Wow. So, um, yeah, but, but some... Um, at Bournemouth, um, their supporters trust meet with the um, club. Um, Spurs, again, they have a meeting with the board. So, yeah, a lot of clubs, the, the only two clubs at the time that, that weren't doing anything really were us and Southampton. Yeah. And, and, I, and I now think both of those have got something in place. And, of course, the, but the question is, what, what you don't see uh, is, actually, how are these forums working? So, yeah. so someone suggested that perhaps... Um, the Arsenal forum, fan forum, w was a bit concerned about how the 
com- the completion of the takeover by Stan Kroenke would impact communications. I don't. It, it, um, now they're a fully private company. It shouldn't do, but you you know you don't know. So, so some of the, some of these might be a bit dormant. Some of these committees might not be getting anywhere. So, but but yeah, all clubs have all certainly all Premier League clubs now have some sort of formal mechanism for talking to their fans on a structured basis regularly. Which can only be a good thing, of course. Oh yeah, you would hope okay. so. Yeah. Okay. Well, finally, I said uh, just mentioned it briefly before. I know you want to talk about. Fan protests at City when the thing gets uh, when the club gets things wrong or ignores fan wishes. Uh, quite a history of this. So if you just want to talk briefly about, you know, what's gone before in our history. Yeah, uh, I mean, if it, with, I mean, obviously, I think f- for most fans, there's one that stands out more than others. So we'll, <laughs> we'll come to that. Yeah, yeah, the course sure of we will. This this, there were some surprising ones. I mean, first, I'd like to talk about what's gone right. Ru- well, what's say what's gone right, but um, talk about the background, how City have dealt with its supporters in the past. And um, the first kind of proper, funnily enough, the first proper consultation of any sort with fans was, uh, City always, um, because they were uh, a company, uh, not not necessarily caught on the stock market, but uh, a company where they issued shares, so they would have AGMs. So that was one, always once a year there would be a meeting with shareholders, uh, who were generally fans, but the, the first formal, I guess, consultation with fans was the fan on the board exercise. And that was apparently introduced by when Franny Lee took over. This was something that Colin Barlow, who was, I think was the MD at the time, was quite keen to do. So they held an election and Dave Wallace, who still was and still is the editor of King of the Kipax, he was elected on as the first fan on the board. And I, actually, I saw Dave on Monday night and I was asking him about this um, and he said, yeah, in theory, it was a good idea. He said, but they wouldn't let me stay in for any sensitive discussions. Yeah. So he said it kind of negated being a fan on the board because they didn't trust him not to talk outside the boardroom. Well, you know, when you hear leaks from inside boardrooms, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit of a thin excuse. So he said, you know, at, at some point he would be sat in the board meeting and say, sorry, Dave, you've got to go out now. And then they'd open the door and say, you can come in. And he'd have no idea what they'd been discussing. Probably the amount of debt. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Or you know, how much money could we spend on the latest donkey? Um, <laughs> and that was that was Franny Lee's, yeah, Franny Lee's days. But yeah, obviously there were financial issues at the club, and uh, yeah. uh, we didn't go into any detail about what 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 was talked about in front of him. But that uh, Dave said it was the, the board were more interested in talking at him than listening to him. So he he describes his role more of fan of the board than fan on the board and mm. his term came up and someone else was elected but the whole thing kind of died to death but as part of out of that came um it was suggested dave suggested that they really ought to be talking to fans openly on a wider basis rather than just one person in a boardroom yeah. so uh, a group called points of blue evolved from that and that was basically Fans getting together to discuss issues and then a delegation would go to the club and meet senior club officials to talk through those issues. So that was quite a good good consultation thing. And, and, and Points of Blue then kind of widened into um, fans, a group of fans just meeting the club, club officials. So basically anyone could go along if they wanted to. And there was, I, I went along to quite a few of those. There were some interesting discussions. Um, but, but the problem was... 
it, it evolved to a point where you only got you didn't get the senior, uh, you know, the, the Alistair McIntoshes there. Um, don't think Gary Cook ever went to one. So you get you get people like Vicky Kloss, and Vicky Kloss is absolutely brilliant. If you ever met Vicky, she's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, really good communicator. Yeah, she's good at her job, good communicator, but great to talk yeah. to, and she's quite open and will tell you all sorts of things. Uh, and Lisa Eaton, who's the um, supporter liaison officer, supporter services head, uh, but but you're not talking to the people who make the decisions. And, and, and it's kind of noticed when the sort of environment I work in, IT consultancy change, um, when you're discussing a big change project, you want people who can make decisions. Because yeah. You don't want people coming to meetings and they'll say, all right, I've got to go away and talk about that with, you know, six other people. You want people to come into meetings and commit to decisions or agreements. And it was kind of... We were talking to them. They were going away, coming back, telling us why they couldn't do things. But the point of blue did actually achieve some good things, actually. Um, the One of the things was the cash machine at, at the Etihad was a points of blue suggestion. And they had been suggesting, even back in Main Road days, that they have some sort of entertainment zone or marquee in front of Main Road where you could you know, get a beer or... Um, you know, have a bit of entertainment or something like that. So, so City Square evolved from that suggestion. Yeah, uh, that, that can't, yeah, can't see it working outside my roads. <laughs> yeah. But um, Points of Blue seem to have ended about five or six years ago, possibly coinciding with the arrival of uh, Ferran Soriano as chief executive. Um, and we were always told by the club they were looking at better ways of talking to the fans and of course we got a lot of surveys and city yeah. voice and all that sort of stuff but it, it's no substitute for actually talking face to face to people so so that so we can after a bit of a hiatus from the end of points of blue to now um you know we've had no formal mechanism of talking to fans but yeah actually i mean i when you talk about fan protest i think we, we always i think we always think of ourselves as long-suffering fans who put up with just about anything uh until Something there's some straw that breaks the camel's back, but it takes a lot to 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 get us going as fans. I don't know. That's just my view. I don't know what view you have. Yeah. But but you know we've been through a lot over the years, and we've kind of shrugged our shoulders, laughed, and got on with it. I think that's an English fan's view as well, in the way that I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I look at Bundesliga protests. We yeah. Just oh, come, yeah. Prices go up a thousand percent over twenty years, and we just keep going, and it's like yeah, yeah. It and we accept it. And if you don't go, you get. Uh, Obviously criticised for not selling out. So. Yeah, because there's, yeah. there's been a big protest against Monday night games there, and we just yeah. like, we just accepted them. Yeah, I, or we've just had one move to Monday night this week, I think. So. Well, I remember that you know the title-winning season, first home game, City versus Swansea on a Monday night, and it's not so yeah. much for me as a City fan, but I'm thinking Swansea fan, your first game in the Premier League, and you've got to travel to Manchester on a Monday night. You know, yeah, bizarre. I assume that's an area that you won't be able to. Well, well, it's one of those things where... will change there, so... Well, it's about putting pressure on clubs to put pressure on the Premier League and the FA and the TV companies to um, to do something about that. You know, be, be, yeah. if they're not talking to us, they don't know. If we're, we're talking to them, and if you've got 20 fan groups talking to their clubs about the same matters, perhaps the clubs could turn around and say to Sky, look, you know, we're not doing Friday night games, we're not doing Saturday night games... If, if it's a Monday night game, it's got to be within 50 miles or something like that. Yeah, that would be a start, yeah. So that would be a start, but unless... The, the local, yeah, local games. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to move them, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let, let's there. let's not have Manchester City versus Swansea on Monday night. Let's have, um, you know, well, obviously Stoke are out of the division, but so Manchester City versus Everton, um, as it was last season. Um, yeah. City versus Stoke, you know, those sort of games. Let's let, let's have those on a Monday night and not City versus Swansea or Newcastle versus Crystal Palace. Uh, just do you want to talk briefly just the historicals? Yeah, the, yeah, it's interesting uh, though. Well. I've got a I've got a name check um Gary James here. Uh and I know we we've we you and I have talked about Gary's book, but um if you haven't got it, his new book, Manchester City Folk Folklore, is absolutely superb. All sorts of little vignettes of um things that have happened in the past, parts of our history. Because of course we've got no history. Um, I was flicking through it in Waterstones, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and part of it caught my eye. Um, and it's a shameless plug for the book, but it's very interesting. And it's about fan protests. And it's surprising, actually, when you go back almost to the start of our history. So the first major fan protest was actually in 1896. And we were um, in the old second division at the time. And um, they had a system similar to the playoffs, except the bottom two clubs in uh, the first division and the top two clubs in the second division played off for uh, a place in the first division. So basically, the two clubs in the first division could keep the place or they could both lose the place. Um, or, or one could lose it and one could go up. Anyway, yeah. so we were in, we, we'd finished level on points with Liverpool. Uh, they had a superior, what they call goal average in those days. So, so us, Liverpool, and I think the two first division teams in the bottom were West Brom and Small Heath, who went on to become Birmingham. So there was a, uh, basically a league around Robin. All teams played each other twice. A bit like a, you know, UA for group stage. And the top two um, you know, were the winners, basically. Yeah. City played uh, West Brom in their first game. And when City had played Liverpool in a league match, they got 30,000 at High Road. So obviously that was a fairly big crowd. Um, they, they played West Brom was the first home match. And the price of admission in those days to Hyde Road was six old pence, sixpence, two and a half new pence. And the director decided it was, as it was the most important match in City's, well, two, three year history to date. Um, they were going to double admission prices to a shilling. You know, 5p. Um, and so the fans just protested. And instead of getting 30,000 or 20,000, 20,000 was about the average crowd. They got 8,000. And of course, so, of course, gate receipts were down as well. So typically they get about £600, make £600 for a big game. But they only made just under £300 on the West Brom game. And, and, and it's a dispute about how big the crowd was. But it was no more than 8,000 and possibly around 6,000. So, so that was kind of a fan boycott, basically. All the fans stayed away. Um. Directors learnt the lesson. Uh, actually, one of the interesting things was uh, the, the, there was known to be quite a good atmosphere at City Games in those days. Now, people may find that hard to believe, but um, uh, the atmosphere was very subdued and there was a general recognition this affected the team. And, and it's amazing how many, how many things that could happen in football that are nothing new. You know, there's nothing new under the sun in football. And we talk, talk about high prices affecting... Uh, tendencies and affecting atmosphere and this was all a factor back in the 1890s mm. so you know it's just uh, a restatement of, of, of those sort of things so anyway we lost we didn't do very well in the playoffs and we had to stay in the um, second division and that was largely 
um, they think, due to the impact of the crowd. Um, then, then a few years later, we got promoted at the end of 1899 season, eventually. But uh, two, two or three years later, we actually we got relegated again. And in those, in those days, you didn't have a manager as such. You had a club secretary. So if you can imagine um, a combination of Bernard Halford and Roberto Mancini, that was a club secretary job. Or um, oh, yeah, I'm struggling, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, if you can imagine Bernard Halford being the manager, uh, even you know, good old Bernard. Um, yeah. But but the, uh, the secretary was a guy called Sam Ormerod. But he was, um, although he was the secretary and the guy responsible for club matters. And again, it's a it's a case of there's nothing new under the sun. But this time, the comparison is Chelsea's. The, the board, the, the directors made a lot of the decisions. So they would often select the team over his head. They would, each director would vie in signing players. So we were spending a lot of money on a lot of different players. And the secretary had very little choice over who he signed. Um, the, the club was in, there was a, a director called John Allison, who was um, no relation to Malcolm. Um, but he was very influential and he persuaded his friend, a guy called Edward Halton, who was the Rupert Murdoch of his day. Again, nothing new under the sun um, to get involved in the club. And he basically financed Allison, whoever John Allison wanted to buy. Edward Halton put up the money. So you've got directors say buying players over the manager stroke secretary's head. Uh, and, and Ormrod was in an impossible position. And there was a huge media campaign, probably largely driven by Halton and his papers. But also there was a lot of fan unrest. Uh, and it was yeah, perhaps the precursor of something we're going to talk about shortly, the, the, you know, the Swales Out movement. But there was a lot of fan protest against Ormerod, particularly when we were relegated. And that the relegation gave his opponents all the ammunition they needed to attack him. He resigned under the, you know, under protest from... Uh, under the attacks from both the media and the fans. Yeah. And uh, then kind of Halton and Allison took charge and eventually they got um, uh, Tom Maley in as manager. And of course that started our very successful, uh, first very successful run. But at, at the relegation season, apparently, uh, our revenues were, were £7,000, which was very healthy in those days, but we ended up £1,000 in debt. Um. So, so that was a huge, um, a huge thing, and if and if you think back to not that many years before Ardwick had gone bust to form um, City, then then obviously this was a thing. So this was another big fan uh, protest against Sam Ormerod and the way the club was being run. I think we had a relatively quiet time um, until we get to the late nineteen twenties, really, and and again there's echoes of echoes of. Um, uh, more recent days where we were relegated but still had among the best support in all the divisions. Um, in fact, I think we were, the, we were the third best club, um, even down in third best supported club down in Division 2. But we even in some weeks, we had the best crowd in the whole of the professional league. So again, you know, we're, we're going back to the 1998 League One um, yeah. seasons. The big protest came when uh, obviously we got back up. Uh, uh, obviously, I've done the podcast on Tommy Johnson, uh, who was City's um, one of City's great superstars, uh, forward, high-scoring forward. Uh, he was City again needed the money, 
uh, and sold Tommy Johnson to Everton. And again, you know, you've got echoes of Sean Wright Phillips being sold to Chelsea because we needed the money. Um, yeah. But Johnson obviously was a very popular player. I think he'd scored the highest number of goals in in, in a season. And um, again, there was a fan boycott. So so Gary reckon, Gary James reckons that uh, the crowd struck by about uh, 8,000 on average as a protest as a result mm. so again you know the, the fans weren't happy I think that the, the next big one comes in about 1950 which is an interesting one um, and it involves Bert Troutman surprisingly yeah. but obviously uh, when City had a bit of a goalkeeper crisis uh, and they needed to sign someone so they signed Bert Troutman from St Helens and obviously he was an ex uh, a German prisoner of war and there was a lot of, uh, in 1950, there was still a lot of anti-German feeling around, particularly among the Jewish community. Yeah. Uh, and, and, there's, and again, there's always a thing about Spurs being the club most associated with a strong Jewish support. But pro rata, City and United have probably got far higher ratio of Jewish support than Spurs or even Arsenal have in, in North London. Yeah. So obviously this was a big thing for... Uh, both the community generally and the Jewish community in particular. And um, again, there were a lot of protests about this, a lot of press um, uh, press media articles and, and fan protests. And it really took um, the city team welcome Troutman and said, whatever, you know, gone on before is gone. Uh, and there was a, a communal rabbi in Manchester, Rabbi Altman, who basically poured oil onto troubled waters and calm things down. And, of course, Burt went on to become a huge legend among City fans. He, and yeah. he played his own part in, um, you know, making his own reputation. But that was a, you know, a, an interesting one. And then, and then over the 19... Obviously, in the mid-50s, we had quite a successful team with, you know, Don, Don Reavy, Bobby Johnston, um, those sort of people. You know, we, were, we appeared in two consecutive FA Cup finals, uh, losing one and winning the other. Um Les McDowell was the manager, came up with the famous Reavy plan based on the Hungarian deep-lying centre-forward, which, you know, when you see Sergio Aguero coming back into midfield to pick up the ball, that was the the Reavy plan, basically. Don Reavy dropped, yeah. dropped deep. The defenders didn't know whether to come with him or st stay tight. He could pick up the ball in space uh, and, and use it. But then McDowell ran out of ideas and the club slowly declined and was... Um, uh, relegated and then uh, McDowell was sacked and his assistant George Poyser was appointed manager. Now Poyser wasn't really a manager, he was more of a scout and he just lacked the ability to get City promoted uh, and there were two things going on here. One was um, I, I, I'm told on Monday there was this kind of a pressure group, what we call a ginger group set up um, to basically agitate for Poyser's removal and get a bit you know, get get the club being a bit more act, proactive in getting a manager who could get them promotion, and that's obviously that happened. George Poyser was sacked, uh, and Mercer and Allison were eventually appointed in '66, and um, obviously that changed our fortunes dramatically. But again, there was, there was a fan protest around Poyser, and uh, I think as people know, in those days the crowds had dropped significantly, down to under ten thousand at many games. You know, there's, there's the famous 8,105 attendance against um, Swindon Town when Mike yeah. Summerby was playing for Swindon. Um, and if you think that was in a ground that had held 84,000 people at one point, um, you know, we, <laughs> people talk about empty seats now. Can you imagine 
what uh, <laughs> the Manchester Evening News and the Red Pencil would have done with a crowd like that. Um, That's featured in a, re- a recent quiz question, I think, <laughs> on this very podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, so, at once, so there were two things going on. One... Uh, on one hand, there was a pressure group to, uh, agitating against Poyser and the board. Uh, but on the board was a guy called Frank Johnson, who, again, I think we talked about in the Mercer Allison Years podcast. And Frank Johnson was one of the major shareholders beside the Alexander family. And Frank Johnson decided quite unilaterally, uh, from what I gather, that there wasn't room in Manchester for two teams. Uh, can, you, uh, can you imagine that these days? I mean, there's more than enough... Well, well, someone did mention it with Bristol a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just as laughable, even if they're not, you know, yeah, yeah. Even if they're not Premier League. But team. basically, Johnson approached the United board to talk about a merger. I'm not sure if he had the backing of the City board to do that, but given the fact he was, I think he was the second biggest shareholder, uh, he probably felt he was secure to do that. And his idea was to merge the two clubs, and of course, news news of that leaked out, uh, and and that just completely. He, I, I don't. I was yeah. too young to remember that, but um, can you imagine what the fan protest over that would have been? I mean, yeah. more likely to be the other way around these days, isn't it? Um, and if I remember, <laughs> with yeah, as discussed in your, your three parts, yeah, 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 history so, pod on uh, Mercer and Alice. So that was a, the huge uproar, and, and Johnson had to abandon his plans. But yeah. you, you know, you do wonder what impact that may have had, the reaction he got. Or his view of City may have had on his ability, his um, decision to sell his shares a few years later. Yeah. Um, then, of course, um, we started a period of kind of boardroom upheaval with the sale of those shares, which ended with Peter Swales coming on the board and becoming the chairman. And I think he became chairman in 1977, though we'd been on the board a little while longer. Uh, 73 or 77, I can't remember. And of course, at that point in time, mid seventies, we had a really good team. Not seventy six, sorry, because he was at Wembley. I don't know if it's even. But he was a direct, certainly a key director. Said this I, is going to be I easy, or I can't. Yeah, yeah. When we won a cup, yeah. So uh, he said he was a key director, but I can't remember exactly. Around seventy six, seventy seven, maybe a bit earlier, he actually became chairman. And of course, things looked really good in them. Say, we had that League Cup win. A couple of times, we were very close to winning the title. Only um, a Dave Watson own goal stopped us winning the title one season. Um, and things looked really good. But of course, Swales was Swales and he made, he brought Malcolm Allison. That's no, right. It was Malcolm Allison he brought back in 77. That's why I'm getting 77 from, isn't it? And um, Malcolm Allison just decided to break up that team. You know, Peter Barnes and Gary Owen and players like Dennis Chua all went and um, we were never the same again. And of course, we were relegated in 1983. And that was kind of the start of the murmurings against Swales. Uh, and then we had our yo-yo years so obviously we came back in um, we went down in 83 we came back in 85 back down in 87 back up in 89 um, and then around the early 90s things looked quite good Peter Reid was the manager we had two consecutive fifth place finishes and then um, somehow it all seemed to go to pot Um, I I think we'd run out of money uh, if I remember rightly as usual as usual but I think Partly, I think it was Peter Reid because I think he, Peter Reid was one of those managers who come in and do a great job for two or three years, and then they, you know, runs out of ideas, gets found out, or yeah. I, I always, I don't know, I always characterise him as someone who shouts and screams, um, and, and that has an impact for a while. I don't think we realise how good we had it though. 
No, no, because I mean, but with those fifth yeah, places, fifth place yeah. finishes, yeah. Careful what you wish for. Careful so, what you wish for. Scenario. But, yeah. but I remember, I remember this quite vividly because it was '93, early in the. We got two '93, '94 season. We got two points in the first five games under Reed, and I think there was already concerns over uh, the money situation. I think Reed had been told he had to sack. Sam Ellis, all these rumours flying around and Reed wasn't happy. And of course, Peter Swales used managerial sackings to deflect from uh, protests against himself, probably. Um, and I remember my, my son's first game, actually, was against Blackburn early in that season. And they were, of course, in the Jack Walker period. And um, we got beat 2-0 at Main Road. And um, the crowd by then was, you know, turning on Swales. I think, it, think that was Reed's last game in charge. Uh, maybe in the next one, I can't remember. But um, the Swales protests were at an absolute crescendo at that point. And um, I remember after the game, there was a big gathering on the, the forecourt in front of the main stand and the usual kind of um, protests and, you know, proverbial, I don't think any rocks were actually thrown, but the proverbial rock throwing at the boardroom, at the, at the windows. And my son thought this was the best part of the game. He wanted to. He, he, he was completely bored by the football, but he, want, he wanted to come back for the protest next week. Um, and obviously, then um, that Franny Lee then announced his intention. I think his original intention was just to get a seat on, buy some shares, and get a seat on the board. But that quickly mutated into a full takeover, and um, and obviously then the forward with Franny group got started and uh, there was that memorable game where Franny Lee was in the director's box when um, the, the taker was in full flow and he got yeah. clapped and cheered into the box and Swells got booed like, you know, the pantomime villain twirling his yeah. moustache. Um, so, you know, obviously the four, you know, Swales out mutated into forward with Franny. Uh, and again, it was a little bit out the frying pan into the fire, though I do have some sympathy with Franny because I think the financial situation was so so bad at that point. Yeah. There was unless you were prepared to pump in millions and millions, there was very little um, you can do about it. Um, so, so, so kind of obviously that that was it. Franny came in. Dave Macon went on the radio. David Macon, the major shareholder, then went on the radio to denounce Franny as chairman. Wardle and Macon came along. And then we're OK, more or less OK, up to, um, I guess, um, the move. Well, the move to the Etihad, Keegan went, Pierce came along. And again, it was, again, became clear we were short of money. Uh, yeah. And this move to the stadium, uh, new stadium with its 48,000 capacity, had made no impact at all on our financial situation. So um, that's when uh, me and others started the Supporters Trust. Uh, and again, the, the, the aim was to get enough shares backing us to be able to get people onto the board who would represent the interests of the, 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 the fans uh, and the club as a whole. Um, and that ended, of course, with the Shinawatra takeover. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the, the the most recent one is the UEFA protest, because uh, again, you know, we we put up with all sorts of rubbish from UEFA, and, and you always see stories in the press about this, and they they always mischaracterise this protest. They, they say, you know, we're booing about FFP, we're booing about you know being fined for throwing paper aeroplanes, 
but of course yeah, we've talked about I think most city fans were there realize that um a lot of this had gone on you know city fans weren't happy with UEFA full stop anyway but I don't yeah. think we'd, we we'd done any visual particularly visual or, or visible protests at that point but of course it all revolved around the CSKA games where both us and Bayern Munich had been basically uh, the, the fans had been locked out of the stadium uh, because of an issue with CSKA fans racism and um, neither got compensation for the kind of um, money they'd spent uh, and it just so happened that the next game after we played in Moscow we were playing Bayern at the Etihad and both fans decided to group together to, yeah. to boo the anthem and that's where it started so and of course it's carried on I was surprised actually I thought it was about it was 2014 I thought it was yeah. a little bit more recent than that so we've been yeah. doing it now for um, four years not helped, of course, by there being about 2,000 people in that stage, CSK. Stage, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, again, so, you know, all the rubbish, we'd, all, the, all the crap we'd suffered at UEFA's hands, we'd put up with it till that straw, the CSKA game. And we're only talking about maybe 100 City fans, maybe 200, I don't know, went to Moscow. Um, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back, which kind of brings me back to the point I was making earlier. City fans are a fairly forgiving bunch on the whole. But at some point they will snap, and when they do snap, um, so hopefully the new committee will, <laughs> will will kind of nip that sort of thing in the bud. Um, but it'd be interesting to hear whether they actually do say anything about uh, UEFA and the booing, because we've heard various things from the club. But it, yeah. it was interesting, Obviously wasn't Pep it, that, like it yeah. that Pep didn't said he didn't like it, but then he's on the touchline outside his technical area, screaming at that um, Damir Skamina, the referee in Hoffenheim. And he's already yeah. had a ban for screaming at the guy at the Liverpool game. So, you know, and you, you could see the players in the Hoffenheim game throwing their hands up and shaking their heads. And, they, you know, they know what's going on. You could see. Yeah. They all know what's going on. Um, yeah. So perhaps Pep, I would be interested to hear Pep's mellowed his um, position on the, on the uh, kind of hostility to UEFA. <laughs> well, th- thanks for that history anyway. I can only assume that by you including that, that you, you are... Using city matters to uh, initiate some sort of revolution or coup <laughs> at the club. <laughs> no, no, no. Because what turned out, what what started as discussing your role about uh, city matters has turned into a history, which you clearly want to add another one to I, the I, end. I of, should, so. I should point out that we are not a pressure group. We are not a protest group, and hopefully, we'll be working very constructively with the club to iron these things out. Uh, you know, before they become problems. Uh, though obviously there's not a lot we can do about UEFA uh, as a single no. group. But, I, you know, I always feel that as a community of fans, and if you think, if there's other groups doing this at other clubs, perhaps we can feed up into, um, into through our clubs, into the PR, into the Premier League, into the FA, uh, into the TV companies, as I've said, that, that there is a problem. And perhaps they need to think, of, think about us as fans not about the people who sat on armchairs. Very interesting, yeah, actually. Just, just, yeah, just one. Yeah, with VAR, sorry, and stuff like that, there is this feeling that the game is moving towards a TV audience. Now. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But there will be a tipping... There has to be a tipping point. Yeah. Even um, with the laid-back English fans, not just the not going to matches, there has to be a tipping point. And basically, TV and club owners do not want to see... This is not a city thing. Do not want to see empty seats, but the tipping point will... Were resulting the biggest clubs having empty seats all over the place, and that's probably when 
they'll have to start listening to fans at last. Yeah, yeah. The combination of high prices, daft TV times, never knowing when a game's going to be played until you know a few days beforehand. In some cases, yeah, the Spurs but, game. Yeah. You know, moving it twice. It's interesting. I just just finish on this note. One of the guys um, at the meeting, one of the fan reps, had been to um, uh, a meeting of the. On behalf of the official supporters club, had been to a meeting with the Premier League, and the Spurs game came up, and Richard Scudamore was not happy about Spurs. I can tell you that. So it does just make you wonder whether if we pushed a bit harder as a club, uh, you know, if we, yeah. and um, not being happy is not much use to us, though, is it? You know, no, no, no. Did but he do any, did but, he do anything about? No, no, it no. Or? I mean, the, the, the impression I got that Scudamore felt that um, Daniel Levy had led him astray. Yeah. On on the state of the stadium, so you'd think, well, you you know, if someone's not told you the truth, you come down on them hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And perhaps if we'd had a fan, you know, if we had that contact with the club, we might have been able to make that point. Exactly. A little yeah. bit stronger. Yeah, if yeah. we'd known what was going on in the discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, brilliant. Uh, right, I think we've covered everything on that. As I say, we'll get further updates in the future when we know more about what's happening, uh, what's been discussed. Don't expect to get you to give away secrets, but uh, it will be good to know how it's all going for you and how the City Matters is going too. So thanks for uh, coming on the podcast today, Colin. It's and a pleasure. explaining it all to us. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and thanks for listening, everyone. I hope that was interesting for you. Uh, plenty more shows coming up, of course, as the Premier League uh, has returned after the international break. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>